0: FMR 101.3 Hello, I'm Fanula Dowling from the Center for Extramural Studies at the University of Cape Town. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this Fine Minds Lecture on the subject of sleep by Dr. Dale Ray. Dr. Ray is a senior researcher in the Department of Human Biology. Her research focuses on chronobiology, the study of the body's circadian 24-hour rhythms, and sleep physiology. She is particularly interested in how sleep is associated with health, disease, and obesity, and with the relationship between sleep, the body clock, and physical performance. Towards the end of 2016, Dale launched a new venture within the Sports Science Institute of South Africa called Sleep Science. Its vision is a healthy nation through sound sleep. At our winter school this year, Dr. Dale Ray's lecture on sleep physiology received rave reviews. We are proud to be able to present it to a wider audience. Good evening, everyone. I have the great privilege to chat to you tonight
1: about one of my absolute favorite topics, sleep physiology and perspectives on health and disease. So just by means of an overview, I'm going to chat to you first about sleep physiology. What is sleep exactly? Why do we sleep? How much sleep do we need? How is sleep regulated? And this conversation would simply not be complete unless I included a little bit on circadian rhythms and their crucial role in our sleep. We'll then have a look at the sleep circadian and health link. We'll look at circadian disruption. We'll look at artificial light at night and the new concept of social jet lag. And then we'll look at the impact of sleep and circadian disruption on our health with a particular focus on non-communicable diseases. And then I hope to end off by giving you a couple of tips or tricks that you can implement at home to improve your own sleep habits. As a starting point, I guess the first thing we need to say, what is sleep exactly? I always get a chuckle out of this when I ask this to my students because many of them are actually busy sleeping in my class as I'm going. However, none of them are able to answer this question for me. So I pose it like this. What is the fundamental difference between being asleep and being awake? Well, quite simply, it's that you become perceptually disengaged from the environment. So sleep is actually an active process in which all the sensory stimulation is blocked or modified in some way so that we cease to be conscious of the world around us. If any of you have had young children, you'll be able to relate to this. While you might have trouble getting your little ones to sleep, once they're asleep, they generally seem to be dead to the world and you can literally have a party or vacuum around them and it's very, very difficult to wake them up. To help us understand sleep, I think it's important to know what the structure of sleep looks like. Now sleep researchers have used a technique called polysomnography to try to get an image of what sleep looks like. So essentially what they do, they bring you into the sleep lab and they hook you up to all sorts of strange looking devices. You'll have electrodes on your head so that we can look at what's happening in your brain. We're looking at your brainwave activity. They'll measure your breathing frequency. They'll measure your heart rate. They'll measure the level of oxygen in your blood. All sorts of things which enable them to actually define the structure of your sleep. And so essentially what happens is that when we're awake, we have high levels of consciousness and our brain is super busy as we're scanning and processing our environment. And as we go to sleep, the first stage that we go through of our sleep cycle is called stage one sleep. So our brain starts to slowly chill out. The activity slowly reduces but we still have a quite a high level of consciousness. So if I were to come and shout next to your ear, you most definitely would wake up. You then progress into stage two sleep, which is an intermediate level of sleep where your brain is slowing down a little bit more and your level of consciousness decreases a little bit further. And then you hit deep sleep. You might know it as slow wave sleep and it's at this stage of sleep that your level of consciousness is very low and it's super difficult to wake people up from this stage. What happens then is you generally then progress into what we call REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, or you may know this as the type of sleep during which you typically dream. And interestingly, the activity in your brain during REM sleep looks very much like the activity when you're awake or during stage one light sleep. The difference is that you are completely paralyzed, so none of your muscles are able to move. And this is quite a good thing. I'm sure you can appreciate that if you were able to move, you may well end up acting out your dreams so that's the basic structure of our sleep and what happens during say an eight hour night of sleep is that we go through a number of sleep cycles so a sleep cycle is where you go from being awake and then you drop down into stage one stage two stage three sleep you come up again and you typically have a REM period or a little bit of dream sleep each cycle takes about 90 or 100 minutes And um, as the night goes by, you probably have four to five of these cycles during the night. Really important to note, though, is that the structure of these cycles changes throughout the night. So in the early part of the night, we tend to do most of our slow wave or deep sleep. And this we understand to be really important for your physical or physiological recovery and repair. Whereas as the night progresses, you tend to have more and more REM or dream sleep. And this we think is very important for mental recovery. And so very often people wake up and go, oh my goodness, I can remember my dreams and um, it's, they all seem so real. And that's because you typically end your night of sleep with a period of REM. So in healthy people, we should have about 25% of our night comprising REM or dream sleep and 75% should be the other stages. I just want to take a slight diversion here because I think it's interesting to note what the effect of central nervous system depressants or stimulants can be on the structure of your sleep. So a depressant would be something like, say, alcohol. So what we find is that when you have alcohol, it reduces the amount of time that you spend in your deep sleep. And it also reduces the amount of time that you spend in your REM sleep. So I think you can appreciate that long term, if you're depriving your body of its deep sleep or its REM sleep through excessive alcohol usage, that can have absolute dire consequences. Of course, a lot of people will say, ah, but I need a little bit of alcohol. It helps me to fall asleep quickly. That's true. It can make you feel sleepy and it can help you get over that little bump to get into sleep. But the reality is that very much in the second part of your night, alcohol actually tends to disturb your sleep and creates a lot more awakenings. And this can reduce the quality of your sleep, which is actually what we're really concerned about. When we have a look at the effect of central nervous system stimulants, I'm speaking about things like nicotine, caffeine prescribed medications in many cases or recreational drugs that give you uppers their effect is a little different to that of the downers what they tend to do is they also reduce the amount of slow wave sleep that you have but they also produce a number of awakenings during the night and in essence they absolutely wreck your sleep quality all right let's move on to happier things what about Why do we sleep? Again, this is a question that not only do we struggle to answer, but the scientists who have been examining this for years and years and years are still really battling to come to grips with the precise purposes. A recent review has come out in sleep medicine reviews, which I think really nicely puts together what we know so far. So probably the most important function for sleep is something called brain connectivity or plasticity. All right. So what does that mean? It means it's a time when your body enhances all of your little neural pathways or circuits in your brain. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're a little kid and you're learning to play tennis. And at this particular lesson, you've been learning to serve. Now, in order to do that action, there are little pathways in your brain that need to be activated. And while you sleep, those pathways are reinforced or enhanced so that the skill absolutely gets laid down or bedded down in your brain. Another example, let's say an older person is learning to play a card game like bridge. So that's also a skillful game, and all of the different permutations of the game would require different pathways in your brain to be used. And when you sleep, you're able to reinforce those pathways so that you can become a better bridge player. Another um, reason that we sleep is quite obvious. It's an opportunity for our brain to restore its um, energy sources. So your brain uses primarily glucose which is sugar during the daytime and at night we're able to store sugar in our brain so that we're ready for action the next day. It's also a period where we use less energy which means that essentially over a 24-hour period we don't have to eat quite so much as we would need to do if we were awake 24 hours a day. A really important function is also that of removing all of the waste and toxins from our brain so it's a lot of housekeeping that happens at night probably a more obvious reason for sleeping is that it's able to reverse the performance loss that we experience associated with wakefulness. So I'm sure that you'll appreciate that as the day goes by, you get more and more fatigued, both physically and mentally. And this is completely reversed if you have sufficient sleep. One of the super important aspects of sleeping is around immune support. So now your immune system has Two major components. The one is primarily active during the daytime and it's protecting you against pathogens or germs that you might be inhaling. The other part of your immune system is primarily active at nighttime and that's the part that builds up your defense against different viruses and it also uses that time to get rid of any mutated cells, cancerous cells for example, that might have accumulated in your body during the day. So it's absolutely critical for our immune system to function well. And then lastly, Is a matter of survival. It's relatively obvious that without sleep we would die. (laughs) I think that you can appreciate that we can't really conduct these experiments in humans. However, in the early 1980s, uh, Rish Stafan did a really elegant experiment in which he was able to prove that when you um, chronically sleep deprive animals, the only result is that of death. In this particular experiment, he had his little... Rats living on these circular boards that were placed horizontally above little ponds of water. And the rats were able to move around and eat and drink just as they normally would. But whenever they went into sleep, and he judged this by the little electrodes that he had placed on their heads, he would start to rotate the board. And that would wake up the rats and they would need to move. Because if they fell asleep and didn't move, they would plop off into the water, which is not what they wished to do. So what he was able to achieve was a chronic state of sleep deprivation in these rats. And what he showed was that the rats who were sleep deprived suffered severe pathology and ultimately death, while the control rats didn't. And what's really interesting to me was that the pathology was really, really diverse. Lungs were affected in some, stomach in others, brain in others, sexual organ in yet others. And this tells me that the effects of sleep deprivation Are very diverse within our body and they affect every single organ. The other interesting thing to note was that the time to death ranged from 5 to 33 days which shows that there's huge inter-individual variability in terms of our ability to withstand sleep deprivation and we know that's true in humans too. So I suppose you're wondering and I get asked this a lot how much sleep should we get? I think most people will say ah it's around eight hours because that's what they think they should be saying. The reality is, is that most people are actually getting closer to seven. The latest recommendations from the National Sleep Foundation in the U.S. suggest that adults sort of 25 to 65 years of age need seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Now, what I like about these recommendations is that they give a little span on either side where they say, do you know what, for some people, six hours is sufficient, And for others, 10 hours is necessary. And that for me is critical because it allows for the fact that we are all different and my sleep needs are different to your sleep needs. So essentially, it's about finding your own sleep sweet spot as I call it. A lot of people say to me, that's all very good and well, but how am I supposed to know what my sweet spot is? And it's true, it's difficult to judge because we are shocking at actually admitting how tired we are during the day or the fact that we may not get enough sleep. There are a couple of tricks, though, things you can try at home to get a sense of how close you might be. The first thing to look at is how long does it take you to fall asleep? Now, on average, humans should take well between 15 and 5 minutes to fall asleep. That's about normal. If you are falling asleep within 5 minutes, it suggests to me that you have a large amount of what we call sleep debt because you've fallen asleep so quickly. So when people say to you, "Ah, oh, I'm asleep as soon as my head hits the pillow, well, if that's truly within five minutes, I'd like to suggest that that person's probably carrying around a rather large degree of sleep debt. However, just bear in mind that if it's taking you longer than 20 minutes or so to fall asleep, there may be something else at play, something that we would call sleep onset insomnia, and that's an entirely different conversation, but probably suggestive of some kind of underlying sleep disorder. The other thing that you can look at Is whether or not you do what we call catch-up sleep so during the week we're very busy we've got work commitments we get a certain amount of sleep on the weekend or on days where you don't need to go to work or to school or to university you might be having think that you have an opportunity to extend your sleep and that's quite normal it's quite normal for us to sleep let's say an extra hour or so on the weekend but I would suggest that if your catch-up sleep is say longer than two hours compared to what doing during the week It's another good indication that you are probably carrying a a large degree of sleep debt and that you aren't quite reaching your sleep sweet spot. Here's an easy one. Do you wake up feeling refreshed? If you've had enough sleep and you've managed to get rid of your sleep debt, you should literally bounce out of bed in the morning and be ready for action. If you're waking up with very heavy, groggy feeling and you can't attribute it to a big night out the night before, then I would suggest that you're probably underslept as well. And then the last thing to look at which is really important why do we sleep we sleep so that we function optimally during the daytime and if you are not alert during the daytime then it's probably quite possible that your sleep levels are too low so really it's a fine balance between duration quality and timing of sleep while it's important that we get enough sleep it's the quality that's really important too so if you are in bed for eight hours a night you might think you're doing a great job But if your sleep is incredibly broken or fragmented, you may well only be getting about five hours per night, which means your quality is poor and that's not great. The other reason we look at duration is that there's now a lot of longitudinal evidence to show that people who chronically, and I mean this over many, many years, get consistently say less than five hours or more than 10 hours of sleep per night, are much more likely to die sooner or to be at risk for heart disease. The other thing that's important is the timing of your sleep. So you'll know very well that we are what we call diurnal creatures. This means that we're supposed to be awake, alert, and active during sunlight hours, and we're supposed to sleep at night. So it's important that our sleep is in sync with our environment, and that we try to get most of our sleep as much as we can between the hours of sunset and sunrise. The other important thing is that we have consistency from day to day over our sleep because our body loves routine, and by going to bed and waking up at similar times each day, it helps your body anticipate sleep, which makes it easier to fall asleep and then to be alert the next day too. So the next thing that we need to look at is how sleep is regulated. So there are two processes which work together to regulate our sleep. The first is something that I call a sleep homeostat. And the other thing is something called circadian rhythms. Let's tackle the sleep homeostat first. I look at this really like an hourglass and the sleep homeostat therefore tracks your history of sleep and wakefulness and therefore tracks sleep debt. So essentially if you're awake and your hourglass is full and you're nice and alert in the mornings, And as the day goes by, the sand trickles out of your hourglass because you've been awake for longer and longer and longer. And as that happens, your sleep pressure increases. That's that desire for you to fall asleep. It's an incredibly strong feeling that you get at the end of the day when you're ready for sleep. And then once you sleep, that feeling or sleep pressure dissipates. So your sleep homeostat really tracks your sleep debt and it maintains your sleep duration and intensity. So the other regulator is that of circadian rhythms. So this comes from the Latin words circa and diem, circa being about and diem about a day. So circadian rhythms are approximate 24 hour rhythms in your body and what they do is they generate your 24 hour sleep patterns. So they determine the time of day at which you would prefer to be awake and that which you would prefer to be asleep. So I'm going to take a little detour here so that we can explore these circadian rhythms in a little bit more detail. So essentially. If I were to place you in a cave, let's say, and it was completely dark and you had no social cues, no time cues, no feeding cues, nothing like that. And I were to measure your innate circadian rhythm, it wouldn't be 24 hours. And that's what you would have expected because we live in a 24 hour environment. But in fact, innate circadian rhythm is 24 hours and 11 minutes. So it's just longer than that of our environmental world. So if I were to leave you in that cave for 10 or 15 days or so, what that means is that each day you would wake up a little bit later and go to bed a little bit later, so that at the end of that sort of, let's say, 20-day period, I brought you back outside into the real world, your circadian rhythm would have been free running, and you will now be in a completely different time zone. So the fact that your rhythm persists in that black cave shows us two things. It shows us that that rhythm is endogenously driven. That means that it comes from within, that it's, it doesn't need sunlight to keep on ticking over. And that's because your body has what we call a master clock, which is a set of little clock genes which reside in a certain area in your brain. And they essentially help your body to tell the time. I think you can appreciate that it might be quite troublesome that our innate circadian rhythm is longer than 24 hours. But fortunately, it's able to be entrained to our environment by what we call zeitgebers. So these are external cues. And the primary zeitgeber or the primary thing that is able to entrain your circadian rhythm is, of course, light. Other zeitgebers would include things like meal timing, the time of day at which you eat, and activity, the time of day at which you are active. These all help to tell your body at which time of the day it should be alert and awake, or asleep and just chilling. So the output is, is that we're able to entrain, mostly using light, our innate circadian rhythm so that all the processes in our body, biochemical, physiological, and even behavioral, are precisely 24-hour rhythms. And in fact, we observe these circadian rhythms in just about every single aspect of our physiology. The most important or giant circadian rhythm would be that of our sleep-wake cycle, there's a time of day at which we prefer to be awake and a time of day at which we definitely need to be asleep. Your body temperature also has a very specific 24-hour cycle. So what happens is as the day goes by, your body temperature increases and it generally peaks around the end of the day, sort of just before bedtime, so quite a bit after sunset and then it drops during your sleep. And I'm sure that some of you have woken up at say three, four, five in the morning and suddenly felt a little bit cold and snuggled a bit further under your duvets or your covers. And that's because that's the time of day at which your body temperature is at its lowest. What I think is really fascinating, however, is that we can have a biological rhythm which is also translated into our behavior. And we call this circadian behavior, the way that we classify it is one's chronotype. So I'm sure that you've all heard of morning types and evening types or larks and owls. And I'm sure that you can identify with perhaps being one or another. So the morning person is all chipper in the morning. They can bolt out of bed at six o'clock and they're absolutely ready to go. They're infuriating to the owl, who's at that time of the day incredibly surly and really doesn't feel like engaging with anybody. However, at the end of the day, especially around 9 or 10, the good old morning person is completely worn out. They're done, and they're ready to go to sleep, ready to go home, often look like the party pooper, whereas the night owl is just warming up. And we often hear these people say, oh, I do my best work at 10, 11, 12, 1, 2 in the morning even. That's when my brain's alert. And it's fascinating to me that it's their physiology which is driving that. Now, I've categorized owls and larks into sort of or dichotomously, which is really not quite true. It's actually a spectrum. So on one hand we have um, definite or extreme evening types and then we move along a spectrum through to neither types and then all the way through to definite morning types on the other side. And I think this is important because people often say to me, well, if I'm an extreme evening type, can I change my chronotype? So being an extreme evening type, you will never become an extreme morning type. It's just too far to go. But through conditioning, you definitely can modify your chronotype. And I often hear from people who go to the or used to go to the army, for example, they would have arrived as an evening type and left as a more moderated evening type. And that's simply because of the conditioning that they were made to do over the couple of years in terms of having a very early wake times and very, very physical days. So let's bring this back to how it relates to sleep. So essentially, I'm hoping that you're able to see now that your circadian rhythms are very important for your sleep too because they help to generate that 24-hour sleep rhythm and determine your preferred timing of sleep such that morning people will probably be more comfortable waking up at, say, 6 in the morning and going to bed at 9, while evening types are going to be happier to be left to sleep in until maybe 9 and are very happy to stay awake at least until 1 or 2 in the morning. So essentially, healthy sleepers are those for whom the timing of their sleep is in sync with their innate circadian rhythm and that both their sleep and circadian patterns are aligned with the environment. Easier said than done. On the other hand, problem sleepers often find that their um, innate circadian rhythm is too different to the environment. Maybe it's super long, for example, and they I might suffer from something like delayed sleep phase disorder, where they have a very late sleep timing and much later than normal physiological rhythms. And this, I'm sure you can appreciate, makes it very difficult for them to function normally in our 24-hour society. Okay, so next we'll have a look at the circadian sleep and health link. So I've spoken quite a lot about the circadian rhythms and the important thing here is that while we aspire to a, a nice, robust, strong circadian rhythm, the reality is that we're quite good at disrupting our rhythm. So what happens by circadian disruption, I mean that your endogenous circadian rhythm becomes dissociated or desynchronized from the environment. And the way that you would feel that is you probably notice alterations in your sleep-wake timing and the primary symptom would be poor sleep. So the, the main message there is that circadian disruption and sleep disruption are very closely linked. So what are the causes of circadian disruption? I'm sure that many of you have experienced jet lag. So this is the result of trans um travel or flying across time zones too quickly for your body to adapt to the change in the environmental time queue. So let's say you're in Cape Town and you hop on an airplane and you fly to Sydney. Now, that's east of us, and that's eight hours away. When you arrive there, your body is in Cape Town time. So at 10 o'clock in the morning, your body thinks it's 10 o'clock in the morning, probably time for some tea, whereas the Australian environment is telling you that it's six in the evening and that it's probably closer to dinner time and you should probably be winding down for the day. And so the consequence of this circadian disruption is that you feel jet lagged and it takes your body a couple of days, using sun primarily, to re to the new time zone so that you can have an intact circadian rhythm again. Another um, big cause of circadian disruption is that of shift work. So this is where people are required to be working at a time of day where they really ought to be sleeping. And of course, they're often then trying to do their, their sleep during the daytime. More recently, however, there's a term now called social jet lag, and I want to spend a little bit of time chatting about this because this probably affects more of us than you might think, and this is a really big cause of circadian disruption too. So we say that social jet lag is an auto-circadian disease, so that means that it's something that you bring about to your own body thanks to your own behavior, and it's creating a mismatch between the 24-hour light-dark cycle outside and your own sleep-wake behavior. One of the real repercussions of social jet lag is that of chronic sleep insufficiency. So essentially what happens is we're all busy. We've all got so many tasks and commitments that we need to to do, and yet we only have 24 hours in the day. So what are we going to do? We're going to try and extend our day as much as we can into the nighttime to get all those extra things done. And essentially the short of it is, is that we end up building up a whole lot of sleep debt And we actually then need to resynchronize our body quite um, dramatically the next day to make sure that we remain alert and able to function in that particular time zone. So in his book, The Promise of Sleep, Professor William Demens said that our loss of sleep time and natural sleep rhythms is the tragic legacy of a single profound technology, the light bulb. Thomas Edison's light bulb, which was patented in 1880, effectively changed or overrode the natural order of the world creating new environmental patterns of light and dark that have played havoc with the human sleep patterns. So if you think about it, if in an ideal world we should be living by the sun. And in fact satellite images show of, of Earth um at nighttime, instead of showing a nice dark planet, show that we are literally lit up like a Christmas tree. And this light is coming from our cities it comes from our street streetlights, bit of a problem when it's right outside your bedroom window, and more importantly it's now coming from within our houses too. We have obviously our overhead lighting, not to mention the light that's coming off our screens, TVs, computers and various other devices. So before I explain exactly what's happening there and why I think this is a problem, I just want to remind you about the importance of light on your biology. So remember I said that light is the major way that we're able to entrain our circadian rhythm. So light goes through your eyes and travels to a certain part of your brain to help reset your circadian rhythm and it very much dictates the the time of day at which you're able to fall asleep. Now it primarily does this through a hormone called melatonin. I like to think of melatonin as the hormone of the night because if we were to measure melatonin in your body during the day, we would find that it's just about absent And then what happens is that as the sun sets and the light levels go down, your body is actually stimulated to produce melatonin. And then the levels increase through the night, peak in the middle of the night, and tend to drop as the sun starts to come up the next day. So why is this important? Melatonin's primary job is to take the circadian message, which is generated in your brain, and to distribute it to the rest of your body. So it's essentially helping the rest of your body tell the time. However, we are able to affect melatonin by artificial light. So in the middle of the night when your melatonin is meant to be nice and high, if I were to shine full spectrum light on you, and by that I mean outdoor light, high intensity, blue light, short wavelength, I would be able to completely stop your body from producing melatonin. I guess you're thinking, well, sure, that's probably not going to happen, The important thing though, is that even at lower intensities of light, we can have an effect on melatonin. So for example, just the light that is in your bedroom at nighttime, that is sufficient to partially suppress and to even shift your melatonin rhythm. So what it does is it stops melatonin from being released early as it should be close to sunset. And it delays this increase in melatonin, which means that it's more difficult for you to fall asleep at an early hour. It was quite a neat experiment, which was recently done to show the effect of artificial light at night. And in this particular study, they gave people, put them into two groups, and they gave them either paperback books or Kindles. And they were able to to read these books for the four hours before bedtime. And they did this for five consecutive nights. So I guess it's a little bit like you would experience during a work week or during a school week. And what they found was that the people who had access to the Kindles they were less sleepy in the evening and they took longer to fall asleep, and this was because they were suppressing their melatonin levels. They also, funnily enough, had less REM sleep during the night, and obviously they felt more tired the next day. So I hope I've been able to show to you the effect that light has on your natural circadian rhythm and on your sleep patterns, and it's probably through this light exposure that we are able to disrupt our circadian rhythms and our sleep to an extent that we think is now beginning to impact on our health. So let's chat a little bit more about the circadian sleep and disease link. So there's loads of evidence now to show that if you reduce or disturb sleep, you're at higher risk for cardiometabolic diseases. By that, I mean diseases related to your heart or to your metabolism, so heart disease or something like diabetes. There's also evidence to show that if you reduce or disturb your sleep, you're also able to disrupt your circadian rhythm and then that's a bi-directional relationship. And also disrupted circadian rhythms also increase your risk for cardiometabolic disease. So I'm just gonna try to explain this to you without too much science detail, but at least the model that's been proposed around this. Essentially what happens is that if you have sleep deprivation or you reduce sleep, you change a number of hormones in your body. And collectively some of those hormones work together to increase your appetite and reduce your energy expenditure and when that happens you are more likely or predisposed to weight gain which means that you could end up becoming obese if that's not well controlled and on the other side of the equation this reduced sleep changes other hormones that make an environment within your body in which you are more resistant to the hormone insulin and that as you may well know is a precursor for diabetes So essentially, if you're reducing sleep duration, you have an increased risk for obesity and an increased risk for diabetes. And then once you have those disease states, both of them actually feed back and are able to, through various lifestyle depression or stress factors or even the symptoms of the diseases themselves, further interfere with your sleep so that you essentially have a vicious cycle. And so it's been proposed that this reduction in sleep and um, obesity and diabetes of should be termed interacting epidemics. I really couldn't just uh, resist this aside here. It's about Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb. So he apparently regarded sleep as a complete waste of time and he tried to minimize it as much as possible. So to do this, he used what is known as a polyphasic sleep cycle. So just think about this. We are designed as humans to have what we call consolidated nocturnal sleep. We meant to have one big fat sleep at night, essentially. Um, Our cats are polyphasic, and I'm sure you'll have noticed that around the house, they tend to be, well, they look as if they sleep all day long, but they're actually doing the sleep-nat cycle. So that's what Thomas Edison did. He used a nap-oriented sleep pattern. Essentially, he would take 20-minute naps every four hours. Read into it what you will. He died of complications of diabetes. One of the things you might be asking is what comes first Does a circadian disruption disrupt sleep or does sleep disruption disturb your circadian rhythms? It's the good old chicken or egg scenario. So let's have a look at it. It could be the chicken. By that, I mean it could be that um, circadian disruption results in sleep disturbances. And we see this very clearly in shift workers. So remember, shift workers obviously are working at nighttime when they should be asleep. And we know that their circadian rhythm is disrupted to accommodate their working hours during natural sleep time. And the result is that shift workers are typically sleep deprived or suffer from sleep insufficiency or at best poor sleep quality. And there's a load of evidence now to show that they are at risk for developing cardiovascular, metabolic, gastrointestinal disorders, some types of cancer and psychiatric disorders. In fact, a recent review has shown how pervasive the, the effects of shift worker are on our health. We um, now have evidence to show that shift workers have increased risk for reproductive effects like low birth weight of children or prematurely born children. They're greater risk for cardiovascular disorders and cardiovascular disease. They generally have poorer mental health, so increased risk in anxiety and depression and neurotism, for example. Of course, it disrupts their circadian rhythms, which means things like their um, body temperature and hormonal production are very often out of whack. Their brain effects, so not only do they suffer from sleep loss, but they often have REM sleep reduction. And they might well experience GI disorders like dyspepsia or heartburn, and there's an increased risk for cancer too. So this research shows quite clearly, or this body of research, that if you disrupt circadian rhythm, you also disrupt sleep patterns. But what happens if it's the egg? And I think this is a really elegant experiment here in which they showed what happens when you have sleep restriction. So in this particular experiment, they invited people to come and live in the laboratory for 12 days. Can you imagine that? The first two nights, they gave everybody an eight-hour sleep opportunity just to make sure they paid off any sleep debt that they might have come into the lab with. And then under one condition for the whole week, they were given 10-hour sleep opportunities And in the sleep restriction condition, they were only given six-hour sleep opportunities. And then at the end of that week, they measured a whole bunch of things. So essentially, they were looking to see what happens when you have one week of insufficient sleep. And these individuals had about 5.7 hours per night on average. And it was shown that 711 of their genes were up or down regulated as a consequence of this week of sleep insufficiency. And these genes were associated with their circadian rhythms, Their sleep homeostasis, oxidative stress, and metabolism. And downstream of that, many of their biological processes were affected. I think it's quite interesting to further explore this insufficient sleep metabolism scenario because it's probably something that most of us can relate to. So, for example, these particular researchers asked the question, what are the effects of five days of insufficient sleep on your energy intake and energy expenditure compared to if you had adequate sleep? So here they had 15 participants, males and females. They were relatively young, 22 years old, and well, that's actually probably really young. And they were all lean and apparently healthy. And the one group, they allowed them to have an average of nine hours of sleep per night. And in the other group, they restricted them to five hours a night for the week. And what they showed is that the short sleepers, They indeed spent more energy on average during the week. Well, that makes sense because we know that when you're asleep, you spend less energy. So if you're awake for more of the time, you must indeed spend more energy. What they also observed was that the individuals who were the short sleepers in this group, they had a much higher energy intake. So they were eating more during that week. And at the end of the day, what they observed was that they actually had a greater increase in weight. So during one week of insufficient sleep, these um, individuals showed that they increased their total daily energy expenditure by 5%, but they increased the amount of food that they ate, their energy intake in excess of this, and so this resulted in an increase in weight gain. So in short, I've given you quite a lot of insight into what the physiology of sleep is and how it's related specifically to our metabolism and its development of, or and the potential for development of non-communicable diseases like cardiometabolic diseases. What I'm really hoping that you're gonna think about now is how this might impact you personally. And I think that the problem is, is that with our very busy lives, we have so many things to try to fit into each day. And when we are pressed for time, the first thing that we do is we steal time from sleep. And there's a recent quote from some of our um, top sleep researchers. And they say that because we are not conscious when we're asleep, this important aspect of our life fails to impinge on our consciousness much of the time. And so in short, we tend to ignore sleep. We seem driven to casually discard this critical aspect of our physiology. And I guess the problem with sleep is that, sure, you can have a night of no sleep or very short sleep and you feel a bit groggy the next day. But you know that you can easily recover if you catch up sleep over the next day or two, and yeah, all is well. The problem for me is it's the long-term health effects, which we don't feel now. It's a bit like smoking, I guess, and we're only going to notice them way down the line in the future, that are really going to be the things that have a biggest impact on our health. So I hope that I've been able to help you to understand your sleep and circadian biology. And my plea to you is to really take a hard look at your sleep habits and see how can you prioritize sleep better. So to end off with, I'm just going to go through a couple of tips and things that you might be able to try at home to help improve your own sleep habits. So as i would mentioned before, light is absolutely critical for setting your circadian rhythm. So what this means is that you can use light to your advantage to manipulate your circadian rhythm and your sleep patterns. It's really, really easy. You need to seek light exposure in the morning because that helps create a nice, strong, robust circadian rhythm. And you need to be active during sunlight hours. And you just want to limit light exposure at night and, of course, sleep when it's dark. I can hear you thinking, yeah, yeah, easier said than done. And it's true. Many of us need to work at night, especially if you've got young kids or a lot going on at work, we don't have an option. So one of the things I'd like to suggest to you is that you consider some of the apps that are available for your devices and your laptops or home computers, which are able to help limit the amount of blue light or bright light that is emitted from your screens. So it's all very well that we have these fancy devices with beautiful crystal sharp images, but the reality is that if we're staring at those devices late at night, that blue light is interfering with our melatonin production. It's suppressing melatonin or delaying it, and it's going to make it more difficult for us to go to sleep. So Apple's come out with something called Night Shift, and for Android users, there's something that you can look at called F.Lux. And what these apps do is that once the sun goes down, they start to filter the amount of blue light that comes off your screen So ultimately, by the time you've been working and it's 10 or 11 o'clock at night, your screen is starting to look a little bit pinky orangey. I'll have to admit it's a bit disconcerting at first. But the good news is, is that it allows you to keep working without having the very devastating effect of bright light on your eyes. And hopefully it'll mean that you can find some kind of balance between completing the work that you need to do without completely disrupting your circadian rhythm and making sleep really difficult. So there are a couple of tips that I could give you or things that you should think about that you do behaviorally which might help you have a better night's sleep. One of the first things to consider is at what time of day you're drinking coffee. So caffeine has quite a long half-life. It's about five to six hours. That means that once you've had your cup of coffee you still have caffeine in your system. In fact you've got half of what your initial intake was five or six hours later. So if you are sensitive to caffeine and you find that it gives you a really big upper, the chances are that it's also going to be difficult for you to fall asleep if you've got a lot of caffeine in your body. So I would recommend that you try not to drink caffeine around six hours before bedtime. So for a lot of people, that's three or four in the afternoon. But if you're very sensitive to it and you battle to fall asleep, I would see what you can do about relegating caffeine to the early part of the day, i.e. before lunchtime. One of the other things to consider is alcohol. The recommendations are really not to have excessive alcohol within three hours of bedtime. I know that a lot of people think, oh, but it helps me fall asleep. And sure, one sort of tot or one glass is not—it's really not the end of the world. And it can do a lot in terms of helping people de-stress, for example. But excessive amounts of alcohol are incredibly disruptive for your sleep. And you really need to think carefully about that, that if that's an ongoing or chronic problem, It could be something that you wish to address. One of the interesting things is the timing at which you eat dinner. And I know that there are big cultural things to this. So, for example, if you live in Europe, typically dinner happens really late. But the reality is that we really should be eating two to three hours before bedtime. And I just want to illustrate the importance of eating during sunlight, for example, or in our active phase and the dangers of night eating. So this um, beautiful experiment was performed in, in some rats. And what they did is they gave the um, two groups of rats ad libitum access to food and water so that means they could eat and drink as much as they liked for um, a couple of months or couple of weeks i beg your pardon and the one group was only allowed to eat and drink during their activity phase and the other group was only allowed to eat and drink during their um, sleep phase and what they found was that at the end of the experiment the rats who had eaten during their sleep phase became obese and that's interesting because this was despite the fact that both groups of rats had the same caloric intake. So it wasn't the calories, the excessive calories that was causing them to gain weight. It was the time of day at which they were eating. And so there's a, it's a really important point to consider is that our bodies are designed to deal with nutrients and food um, during the day. And so potentially by avoiding big meals at the end of the day or too close to bedtime or specifically night eating, we may well be able to help control weight gain to some extent. The other thing to consider is not to exercise too close to bedtime. Exercise is, of course, a very stimulating activity and any of you that have had like an experience of doing a night race or anything like that, you'll understand that you're on quite a big high after that and it's very difficult to come down. So it just means it's going to push your bedtime out a little bit later than what you might choose. Probably the most important thing, however, is to allocate a good hour or so before bedtime where you try to disengage from the world turn off electronics, stop working, studying, and stressing most importantly. And this hour is the time at which you use to bring your body down to deal with all the busy things that have been happening with you during the week to help get your your body ready to sleep. We've discussed the reason for turning off electronics in terms of light, but the other aspect of that is that, in my opinion, what the electronics generally do these days is they just, I guess they're invading our... I wouldn't say our privacy, but they're invading our time. And what I mean by that is I've just observed so many youngsters who are permanently on their phones and communicating. And communicating itself has a number of emotional ties that go with it. So there can be messages that make people feel happy or excited or very sad and depressed. And you can imagine that if you're having these high sort of cyclical um, emotions right before bed, it's going to be much more difficult to sleep. But um, they've also shown in some studies that – Often teens who are allowed to have their devices in their room with them at night will stay awake much later than they should do because they're so busy uh, messaging and on social media. And in fact, a large proportion of them wake up during the night just to deal with messages or to send messages. And you can imagine the disastrous consequences that's going to have on sleep quality. So essentially, we need to look at what we do during the day and how we uh, manage our time. And how we prepare ourselves for sleep at the end of the day. And um, probably the most important thing is to think about creating a nice consistent sleep routine. And that should create good opportunity if you have a good night's sleep. Thank you.